Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Please be advised that the descriptions in this podcast are graphic. This is Chapter 6 of Blood and Truth, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Today, poking holes in the case. I'm Leonora Lapeter Anton. This story is about a man who has served 42 years on Florida's death row. He says he's innocent. For more than two decades, he's been asking the state to allow for complete DNA tests of the evidence in his case. Florida keeps saying no. This episode explores some of the new facts and alternative theories that have emerged over the past 42 years. I thought it might be helpful to summarize the case against Ziegler because it is a dense cobweb and it does get confusing. So Tommy Ziegler was convicted of killing his schoolteacher wife, her parents, and another man at his furniture store on Christmas Eve 1975. Police had zeroed in on Ziegler within hours. They said the blood spatter didn't match his story. They said he bought a life insurance policy on his wife's life. And there was the testimony of two men. Edward Williams, Ziegler's handyman, said Ziegler had tried to shoot him at the furniture store that night. Felton Thomas, a fruit picker, said he saw Charlie Mays, one of those found dead, walk into the furniture store with Ziegler earlier that night. Ziegler called police for help from the store and emerged with a gunshot wound to the stomach. His story was that he'd been in a gunfight with Mays, who was there to rob him. Mays, a citrus crew chief, had come to the store earlier that day with his wife to pick out linoleum. The couple had four young boys, and Maddie Mays said her husband told her he was meeting Ziegler to pick up a TV for Christmas. So the state's theory was that Ziegler had tried to lure three men to the store to frame them in the killings, but two of them, Williams and Thomas, got away. Here's lead detective Don Fry on a 1979 TV program called A Matter of Life and Death. We had going throughout Central Florida a group called the Ski Mask Bandits. They were black men that were terrorizing, killing, and raping. And certainly, uh, he wanted it to appear that the blacks had, had done this evil deed. 
A lot of people still believe that story, and that's the crux of the story that appeared in newspapers and on TV back in the 1970s. Rod Reeves, a historian in Winter Garden, recalled that the town divided over the murders. People were either completely convinced of Ziegler's guilt, or they were completely convinced he hadn't done it. It became like politics and religion, Reeves said. You weren't going to change anyone's mind, so you didn't bring it up. For so many people, you know, for Eunice's family, for Tommy's family, for Eunice's students, for the town folk who known these people all their lives, you know, for the for the uh, black man's family, um, they just just everybody for Tommy. Regardless, it was it was tragic. But no one actually saw Ziegler shoot four people. A lot of people are troubled by this case. At least five retired police officers, a former editor of the Orlando Sentinel, and Bianca Jagger. Mix X, have raised questions publicly about Ziegler's guilt. One group of Ziegler's supporters has written to government officials, the Pope, the President, urging them to review the case. They come from all over the world, from England, Ireland, New Zealand, and Spain, and they correspond with Ziegler and each other regularly. There are some who have devoted years to trying to prove Ziegler's innocence, uncovering new information along the way. Some have died, some have given up, others push on. In 1992, a journalist and author named Philip Finch published a book about Ziegler's case called Fatal Flaw. Finch, who has died, provided the first in-depth look at what had happened in Ziegler's case. He wrote that Ziegler's story touched on race and intolerance and judicial ethics. What happened to Tommy Ziegler is wrong by the standards that most of us accept, he wrote. The public officials, whose duty it was to bring the case to justice and to bring justice to the case, long ago failed their trust. I include police, prosecutor, and judiciary. He wrote that it illuminated the vast gulf between what is legal and what is just. Fatal Flaw has become the Bible for Ziegler supporters. It presented the state's case and then ripped it down. Amid all the revelations in the book, there's one that I want to share because it's one of the main reasons Finch concludes that Ziegler is innocent. It has to do with Edward Williams, the handyman. Williams says he went to the store with Ziegler to deliver some last-minute Christmas gifts. Ziegler tried to shoot him in the dark hallway at the back of the store three times, but the gun misfired. Ziegler begged him, out in the back parking lot, to come back in the store. Williams has died. Here he is in that TV program from 1979. I said, I ain't going in there no more. You tried to kill me, and I ain't going back in there. He said, here, here the gun. Take the gun. Williams said he put the gun in his pants pocket, leaped over the fence into the parking lot of the Winter Garden Inn, and walked across the street to the Kentucky Fried Chicken. Williams testified he had tried and failed to call police from the KFC. But a couple named J.D. and Madeline Nolan say they were driving by the furniture store that night and saw J.D.'s brother, Ed Nolan, at the KFC. So J.D. crossed the street to talk to Ed. As Ed opened the door, he would later testify, a black man pushed his way in and asked to use the phone to call the sheriff. The brothers both testified the black man arrived and left as the police cars began pulling up to the store, which was documented at 9.21 p.m. 
Later, they would identify him as Edward Williams. So why hadn't Williams talked to the officers right outside? Instead, he drove to a friend's place and then to a police station in Orlando before returning to Winter Garden. If the Nolans were telling the truth, Williams was lying. To put it another way, Finch wrote, the Nolans' testimony implies that Tommy Ziegler must already have been shot when Williams left the furniture store. Finch calls this the fatal flaw in Williams' story. And there's more about Williams' story that doesn't add up. Remember how Ziegler's trial attorney sent Williams' pants away for gunshot residue tests and asked for a continuance because he didn't have the results yet? The gun Williams said Ziegler handed to him, the one Williams turned over to police later that night, had been used to shoot both Virginia and Perry Edwards Sr. This is Terry Hadley, one of Ziegler's original trial attorneys. They didn't do gunshot residue on the inside of Edward Williams' pants pockets to see if there was any there. We did it. Unfortunately, our expert, we were not given the stuff to test until right before the trial, and our expert completed his test about four days after the trial was over, which we thought completely disproved Edward Williams' testimony. And then there was the evidence that Williams may have changed his outfit. The price tag was still on the bottom of the black boots he turned over to police. Supposing to him, he ran over here, climbed a chain-link fence. There was no scuff marks on the toes. You ever seen what chain-link does to a brand-new shine shoe when you stick it in there? It, it scuffs the finish. They, these shoes were unblemished. Ed Nolan, who saw Williams at the Kentucky Fried Chicken, said Williams was wearing a brown sweater and brown trousers that night. But Williams turned over green pants to police, along with the boots. Here's Hadley. In the case, the, the witnesses said he was wearing different clothes. But he was supposedly wearing the same clothes when he went to the police station that he was inside the store. Now, what did he have on his clothes that he changed? Who knows? There were dozens of details like that that tossed the story this way and that like a boat on choppy seas. It would take us days to go over all of them. Here's something we didn't include in the series that ran in the paper and online, because like so many things in this case, it raises questions rather than answers them. It's about a bullet unearthed in an orange grove. Here's Hadley again. There was a gun, supposedly Tommy took Charlie Mays and uh, Felton Thomas out to the orange grove to shoot a gun, test it. Crazy thing. I mean, why would anybody do it? And so then, miraculously, a couple of weeks later, the sheriff finds a spent bullet out in the orange grove. Now, come on. You're out searching an orange grove, and you find a lead bullet buried in the sand two weeks later? Now, what they did is they had prisoners doing the search. Post-trial, we were contacted by this gentleman who was from England, who was one of the prisoners. And he said, I've been living with this all my life. I can't do it. I want to tell you what really happened. And he came in and testified that the bullet was planted and he was told where to find it. We brought that up. And again, singular piece of evidence that on its own was not enough to overturn the conviction but it was presented as a, as a singular piece. And of course, the sheriff deputy said, no, it wasn't true, the guy's a liar. I mean, the usual kind of things you get, you know, everybody forms a circle and points right. 
I asked former prosecutor Jeff Ashton last year about all these details and the possibility that Williams changed his clothes. He said he's never heard that before. He said that's one of the problems with all these statements and affidavits after the fact. It's like if you try as hard as you can, you can come up with alternate theories in every case. That's why we have a criminal justice system. That's why we have rules of evidence. That's why we have cross-examination. We don't just let people say whatever they want and go unchallenged. Mr. Thomas and Mr. Williams were subject to very expert cross-examination. One of Ziegler's strongest supporters would become a woman who first read about his case in 2011 in the St. Petersburg Times. That's the forerunner of my current newspaper, the Tampa Bay Times. Her name is Lynn Marie Carty. She is a private investigator who lives in a tiny apartment near the beach in Treasure Island. She has devoted a lot of the past eight years to proving Ziegler innocent. Carty had once been a beauty pageant contestant, a Mrs. Florida runner-up. As a private investigator, she developed a knack for finding long-lost relatives. Cardi read Finch's book and was outraged by the details. She saw all these discrepancies, the tape recording of the Minnesota tourists that was withheld from defense attorneys, the juror who felt pressured into finding Ziegler guilty and had been given a Valium. So Cardi started calling people and digging into the case. So I was told a lot of things that were incorrect. So I decided to go back through the original newspaper stories and start from square one and just read from the moment this occurred, what did they say, what were they thinking, how was it presented? Because every time I tried to talk to anybody about this in Orange County, they would just say, I went to the store, when I went into the store that's still that is still standing. I went in there, I walked in, they, I told them what I was there for, they said, Guil guilty as hell. Ziegler is guilty as hell. So that was the only reaction that I could ever get from anybody that was involved in the situation in the beginning. She started to wonder about Robert Thompson, the Oakland police chief who had been first to arrive and had carted Ziegler off to the hospital. Coincidentally, days before the murders, Thompson had selected the Mays family to receive a gift basket from a local church. He'd written an initial 13-page report that said Ziegler's wound was dry when he took him to the hospital, which would have contradicted the theory that he shot himself moments before calling police. The report was never turned over to defense attorneys. Later, in a sworn statement, he said it was damp. Thompson was an interesting character. He had worked for the Florida Highway Patrol, the U.S. Border Patrol, and as a bodyguard to Governor Claude Kirk before he came to Tiny Oakland, a two-person department where officers kept no records and carried no guns. Later, in 1985, he and a dozen others would be arrested in Costa Rica at a guerrilla camp of the Nicaraguan Democratic Force, a group seeking to overthrow the Sandinista regime in Nicaragua. They were accused of smuggling arms from Dade County to the rebels, of being mercenaries, charges they denied, according to a 1985 article in the Fort Lauderdale News. Cardi spoke with one of Thompson's daughters, Christine Woodliffe, who lives in Panama City. She had already looked into Ziegler's case herself and had questions. The two women shared all that they knew with each other. Woodliffe loved her father, who has since died, very much, but she knew he had secrets. She'd studied the reports herself and had written a paper on the case for an English class. We spoke with Christine in Panama City last year. She believes her father changed his account of the night of the murders to help the prosecution. 
I don't think there was anything that he was not capable of doing, although I would like to believe that he was a good enough person to not put an innocent man on death row or help to convict someone and put them on death row um, without having a really good reason, like maybe he was more concerned for us and our safety than to just die knowing that another man is going to die too, that he could have helped. And that's why I try to help Tommy, just to try to make things right, or he didn't. Cardi thought if only someone heard what she was finding out, maybe everyone would see the case as she did, that Ziegler was innocent. She held a press conference on the steps of the courthouse in Orlando. It was my very first press conference that I gave in Orlando, in front of the Orlando courthouse. And I stood up there, and Chief Thompson's daughter came. God bless her. Her name is Christine. And she came. She stood right with me as I said all these things about her father's actions in Costa Rica and being arrested. And she stood right there, and she stood up for Tommy Ziegler. Later that day, Cardi received a message from a woman in Jacksonville who had seen the press conference on TV. Her name was Susie Ambler Graydon. On Christmas Eve 1975, when she was 10 years old, Graydon said, she had watched as a large man with a soft southern drawl attempted to rob her mother, who managed a golf station diagonally across the street from the Ziegler Furniture Store. This had taken place around 8 p.m. on the night of the murders, Graydon recalled, and a police officer had gathered information for a report. The shootings at the furniture store took place sometime after 7 p.m. One of the 28 bullets fired at the store, stopped a wall clock at 7.24 p.m. Ziegler summoned help at 9.18 p.m. My mom was getting ready to do an inventory and then getting ready to do the bank, and the customer tapped on the window, and she opened. She says, you know, may I help you? And the guy said, I heard a slow draw go, ma'am, I've been needing you to hand me your money. Missy, there'd be no trouble. And... I, I just kind of perked, and something had jolted me under. And I heard my mother just yell. And I seen her jump up, and something in instinctively, I could sense with mom, and I jumped up behind her. As a child, you're 98% nose. Anything happens with the big people, you're on it. My mother, who was only five foot tall, was hanging, almost thrust herself through the window. The man had a gun. She grabbed it with both hands. She put her face as close as she could to the glass, and she goes, you put that, you get that GD gun the hell out of my face or shove it up your ass, pull the trigger, and blow your black ass all over this asphalt. Now move it. And this man was so large, he filled the window. And this, his eyes, all I remember is, you know, white to his eyes get bigger than hell. And he was trying to get his gun back from my mom. And he ran kitty corner through that intersection. And at that time, across the street and to the western side of Dillard, where it crossed, was Woods. And that's where he disappeared to. She grabbed the phone and called, you know, called the cops. She screamed, get your ass down here, I've been robbed. Years later, Graydon and her mother were watching The Green Mile and remarked how much the actor Michael Clark Duncan looked like their polite robber. They told Cardi. Cardi asked Ziegler's appeals attorneys to send her all police reports from their files. 
In there, she found a Winter Garden Police Department report that described an averted armed robbery at the TGNY Five and Dime at the Tri-City Shopping Mall across the street from the Ziegler store just after 9 p.m. on the night of the murders. Two men had been seen lingering in the employee parking lot with a shotgun in their car, but they left upon seeing a police escort with the TGNY store manager who was on his way to deposit the day's receipts. Hadley, Ziegler's original trial attorney, confirmed that he was never given the reports. They are in the state attorney's file on record at the Florida Archive in Tallahassee, which I reviewed and copied. Police had apparently discounted any connection to the murders. Bacardi found one. Old news stories had mentioned a migrant worker named Robert Foster, who had been the last to see Charlie Mays before he was shot to death at the Ziegler store. The stories got Foster's name from an Orange County Sheriff's Office report. Later, Foster's name would be switched out and replaced with Felton Thomas. Well, in these newspaper stories, it said that Robert Foster asked the police, actually begged the police to put him in protective custody because he was in fear for his life and that he was being held in jail in protective custody as these newspapers were newspaper stories were coming out with him as a key witness. So in the beginning, it was Robert Foster and Ed Williams who were the two key witnesses against Tommy Ziegler. And I found that to be so strange. So I got in touch with the original trial lawyers and I said, what happened to Robert Foster? And they said, oh, he was a typographical error. And I said, for three weeks? That does not make any sense to me at all because I work with lawyers and who wouldn't want to have the proper, the correct name of their correct witness in the newspaper? Cardi hunted through all 16 Robert Fosters in Florida's Department of Corrections database. Up popped Robert Milton Foster, who resembled a picture of the Green Mile actor that she'd taped to the side of her computer. Foster, a large man, had been paroled from a North Carolina prison in the summer of 1975, six months before the murders, and had come south to Orange County to work in Florida's orange groves. Cardi found he'd been sent to prison for stealing a car and attempting to steal TV sets from a furniture store in North Carolina. He'd escaped prison four times, too, but been caught. Cardi spoke with apartment manager Mary Beach, who had rented to Siegler's handyman and chief accuser Edward Williams. The manager also knew Foster and Mays, one of the victims. They had played softball together in a league run by her husband. We talked to Beach last summer. Matter of fact, I was an umpire. My husband, Dean, was an umpire. Uh, we played on softball teams ourselves. And right below our apartment complex was uh, ball fields, and there was a lot of ball games going on there. That was the thing that was going on in the town at that time. Charlie Mays, and I guess it was Robert Foster that we come to find out, you know, that that's who it was or whatever. Uh, they, Charlie had a softball team that he put together, managed, or whatever. It was like a, uh, a black softball team, but they played there on the grounds. Cardi tracked Foster to a rundown apartment in Tallahassee where he was known as Big Bob. 
By then, she had started talking to her neighbor, former Pinellas County Sheriff Everett Rice, about the case. He began reading the Ziegler transcripts. He, too, began to see that Ziegler might be innocent. He produced an analysis of the case in which he said that defense attorneys should have heard about the attempted robberies across the street on the night of the murders. Everett Rice talked about the case from the law office he shares with his son in South Pasadena. The detective testified prior to the trial and probably at the trial that no such Robert Foster existed. That was a typographical error. So, you know, they had to accept his explanation, which was outrageous. What Lynn Marie had done, she had located a Robert Foster who was a real person, who was associated with people involved in the crime, and who she identified as the guy that tried to rob the gas station. There's too much coincidence here. Rice put her in touch with Calvin Denny, a retired Pinellas County Sheriff's Department captain who had become a private investigator, to go find Foster. Denny visited him at his apartment in Tallahassee. Foster told Denny that he didn't know Ziegler or Mays. I never been in Winter Garden, he said. So I, I thought at this point that they must have just made Robert Foster disappear and become non-existent to help the case. When Denny found Foster in Tallahassee, he called Cardi and handed her the phone to talk to Foster. How could he be a polite robber? Like, what robbers are polite? Like, he was like, ma'am. And when I got him on the phone, when Calvin put him on the phone, he says, ma'am, I've never been in Fort Pierce, Florida. And I said, I didn't say you were. What about Orange County, Florida? Well, yes, the police were waiting for me to bring me there. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a very polite robber. In 2014, Cardi held another press conference outside the Orange County Courthouse in downtown Orlando. She was flanked by poster boards that she'd made of her findings in the case. She introduced an older man in jeans and boots with slick back hair who stepped awkwardly to the microphone. His name was Ken Roach. We interviewed Roach and his wife Linda at their home. They live in Eustis, about 30 miles north of Winter Garden. We were traveling down uh, Dillard Street uh, as we uh, arrived about a, a 45 degree angle uh, from the north corner of the store. We heard a loud explosion, which sounded like a, a what we thought was, was a M80 firecracker or fireworks. And then immediately, it was just a series of different volume sounds that sounded like uh, lighting a, a whole pack of firecrackers of different sizes. And it was just, I mean, just all of a sudden, you know. This happened about... Uh, as we were passing, it was approximately 7, 7.15 uh, in the evening. Roach turned to look at Ziegler's furniture store, where he'd heard the explosions. I observed a pickup truck on the north corner of the store that was backed in, and all I could see of it was basically the grill. The next thing that I saw, there was a, a man walking. He was probably about eight foot or so from the, from the door. This person was... Uh, I would say of medium build, 145, 50 pound maybe, uh, medium height, five, uh, well, I'd say medium height, a little shorter, I'd say maybe five, seven, five, eight. And he had on a, uh, a light winter jacket and a, and a cap. But uh, after that, I, uh, the next thing I observed was a, a, a white Cadillac, four-door Cadillac, Here's his wife, Linda Roach. And we went past, as we were passing the store, we heard this 
one loud pop, I thought the tire, I was, I had braced for impact. And I saw four cars parked out in front of the store. Ken made the remark, well, the Ziggler's is open for the last minute Christmas dollar. The Roaches still believe more than one person was involved in the murders. There were too many cars, too many shots, they say. But they never testified. They had tried to tell police what they saw and heard and say they were turned away. They reached out to Ziegler's mother, who put them in touch with his attorneys, but Hadley said he didn't hear about the Roaches until long after the trial. After introducing Ken and Linda Roach, Cardi returned to the podium and pleaded for Ziegler's life. She didn't say anything about another theory she was working on. Not yet. I'd laid it down for probably a couple of years, hadn't bothered it. And I went on the computer and was looking at it one night, and that's when uh, Lynn Marie's name come up, that she had taken over his case and was investigating. And I told her, I said, you know, I, I just don't believe that's the way it happened. And I think that's when Perry Jr.'s name first got into it with her. I said, I think that's, you know, a fellow that you need to look at because he actually had more motive to, to do these things than, than Thomas Ziegler did. That's Gene Jones, a former sheriff's deputy. We were sitting this past summer on his porch in Sylvester, Georgia, about 30 miles from Moultrie, Georgia, where Eunice's family lived. The area is just wide open farmland with cotton and peanuts and other crops. Massive metal irrigation arms stretch across the fields. Jones said Eunice's brother, Perry Edwards Jr., a corrections officer at a Georgia prison, was a loose cannon. Jones' son had married Perry Jr.'s granddaughter, and they had a kid together, but the two families did not get along. I strongly feel that he had something to do with those murders, and the best explanation I can give you of that is Perry Edwards Sr. He took the worst beating and shot more times than anyone else in that store. So to me, that would be a sign of somebody that, that was really, really mad and upset with him. That, that's, to me, that's just something that, that Perry Jr. would possibly do. My understanding is he had, he had gotten mad between Thanksgiving and that Christmas Eve when he found out that they were wanting to make Tommy the executive of their estate. They were getting on up in age, and I also think Mr. Edwards Sr., if I understood it right, also had some health issues going on, so therefore they were looking at you know, getting wheels set up and establishing things on that nature. Cardi researched the Edwards online and made a startling discovery. The family had owned hundreds of acres of farmland in Levi County, Florida, that Perry Jr. had inherited. At the trial, an asset check had only described his parents' estate as a house and a car in Georgia. A month later, Cardi received an affidavit from Joan's daughter-in-law, April Nicole Lanier, who had come to believe that Perry Jr., her grandfather, was involved in the murders. I spoke with Lanier a few years ago on the phone, but she didn't want to be recorded recently. But here's what her affidavit says. My grandmother, Sandra Faye Edwards, also told me that on Christmas Eve 1975, my grandfather, Perry Barnett Edwards Jr., was in Winter Garden, Florida, she wrote. When he was leaving the house in Georgia to go there, my mother Jenny asked if she could go with him. My grandmother, Sandra, said she did not want her to go with him because she felt there would be trouble. Lanier said her grandfather had threatened to kill her husband ten times and had recently told her he would kill her too if she returned to her husband. She said she believed her grandfather was involved in the Ziegler murders 
Thomas Oreck, ex-husband of Lanier's mother Jenny, saw Edward's abusive nature firsthand after they found out Jenny was pregnant with Oreck's baby. We spoke to him in front of his house in Georgia. They came home, and um, she was sitting in a reclining chair, and they told me to step outside. I mean, they were really fussing and all, and I'm sitting there crying and all, because I'm wanting to marry her and everything. And they said, no, y'all don't need no baby. She needs to stay in school. They told me to step outside, and then he came across the room and just nailed her with his fist right sitting in that chair there. And I'm standing outside the sliding glass door, and I'm thinking about going in there, but it's their house, you know, what could I have done? Here's how Oreck describes his ex-wife's father. said most of the time he always, he want to laugh and cut up and all that, but he was pretty much a bully a lot of times, too. You know, he was, it was going to be his way. Cardi knew from Ziegler that his in-laws had asked him to become the executor of their estate, but he told them no, he didn't want that responsibility. Plus, he figured that would create family tension. He and his brother-in-law didn't really get along. Cardi wondered if Edwards had hired a group of men to kill Ziegler at the furniture store. But we might never know. Perry Edwards Jr. died a few years ago, and his wife wouldn't talk to me about her husband. Standing outside her home in Georgia, she described her former in-laws and Eunice, the murder victims, as lovely people, but she wouldn't say anything about the case for the record. Jean Jones, whose son married into the Edwards family, became so interested in the old case that he offered to help Cardi. Together, they interviewed Felton Thomas in the lobby of the Fort Pierce police station. Remember, Thomas was the man who testified he saw Mays go into the store with Ziegler right before the murders. He testified that they fired off guns at an orange grove earlier that night. He and Edward Williams were the primary witnesses against Ziegler. But in that conversation, years after the murders, Thomas denied ever shooting a gun at the Orange Grove with Ziegler and Mays. I've seen the transcript of the conversation, and Thomas explained how he identified Ziegler. I also asked Felton Thomas, at any time did the police have you identify Tommy Ziegler? Did they show you a lineup and then you picked him out of there? Oh, no, 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 they never showed me a lineup. No, they didn't. No, they just told me who it was. They told me who the man was, and they told me that they knew that it was Tommy Ziegler. On the next episode of Blood and Truth. How one in that cell handles this environment tells you a lot about the person you're meeting. One might be able to fake it for a day or two, but the conditions themselves, the reality of the physical environment and the environmental conditions strip away the veneers. There's no veneers. Within a very short period of time, you have a pretty good sense of the person you're talking to and what they choose to talk about in that situation, in that heat, in that discomfort, their affect, the way they address you tells you a tremendous amount about the person on the other side of these bars right in front of me. Catch up with the earlier episodes of this podcast on major hosting platforms. And if you like the series, please rate and review us on iTunes.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.